Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. For those of you new to the show, I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy, and as a result of my exposure to supporting those on the front lines, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for first responders and frontline workers. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life, behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. The work you do is incredibly hard and shines a light on the darkest aspects of humanity and suffering. There are no easy answers for how to cope with what you face, but I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Now, if you haven't already shared this podcast with your community of coworkers, this is the time to do it because today we are launching into a five-week series that is going to cover a topic that has become trendy to talk about, but tends to hit some degree of resistance with those on the front lines. We're talking about self-care. The reason I say you should share this with your circle is because we are going to tackle this topic from every angle, and you're not going to want to miss it. So find me on social media, at Lindsay A. Foss to share our posts with your colleagues or on your professional forum group pages, send the info to your union or workplace to include in their email newsletters, shout it from the rooftops, send carrier pigeons, I don't care how you do it, but get the word out because self-care has become a bit of a hot button topic and we're going to want to clarify exactly what self-care is all about, why we have resistance to it, how to overcome barriers to it, and how to make it a meaningful, personal, and practical tool in our strategic wellness action plan. Every single first responder and frontline worker needs this series. So show some love to one another by offering this resource to those you care about on the job. As I said a minute ago, self-care has become this trendy topic talked about often, but it also has become a bit of a hot button topic for those on the front lines. And I think this is for a few reasons. First, as with other topics we've covered on this show, I think many perceive self-care as fluffy or to use a word I don't love, girly. Like taking a bubble bath while diffusing essential oils with candles lit around the room. Second, I think it's brought up as an answer to all things. It has become a bit of a platitude that you can just do some self-care and it will all be better. But when you've witnessed the worst of humanity, a bubble bath just isn't going to do the trick. Third, I think that we complicate it. When I talk with people about self-care and what they think it means... I hear about hour-long baths, going for a massage, going on vacation. These things are all great things, and they certainly can be self-caring, but they're not even remotely the whole shebang. 
When we complicate it, we make it one more thing I have to do, have to fit in. And then it almost negates whatever benefit I might gain from doing it. And it makes it less likely I'll ever make it happen at all because it's too hard to fit in. Maybe there are more reasons that we roll our eyes and discount the idea of self-care when it's suggested to us. If you have others, I would love to hear them so I can add them to my list of things to dispel. You can pop over to my Facebook or Instagram and leave me a message in the comments with your thoughts. As we start this series on self-care, I want to focus today on dispelling some of the myths about self-care and breaking down some of the barriers that I often hear in my office. By the end of this episode, I want you to have a strong sense of why self-care is for everyone, but even more so, why it is an absolute, non-negotiable, must-have need for those on the front lines. And at the end of this episode, I'm also going to tell you about something exciting I have coming up that will help you dive deeper into this non-negotiable must-have. So I hope you'll hang around to hear more about that. Okay, let's start off with the most obvious myth about self-care. Self-care is selfish. I have heard this one for forever, and I hate that it's still a belief floating around out there. Western culture, as well as other cultures, have strong messaging about humility, self-sacrifice, self-deprecation, and servitude as highly valued personal characteristics, most particularly for women. So when we talk about the idea of engaging in actions that focus on self, perhaps even dare to prioritize self, all the fears of being a bad person or being perceived as a bad person by others creep in. But part of the problem here is we misunderstand both what self-care is as well as what selfishness is. So to help me debunk this one, I've gone to my trusty dictionary. Thank you, Merriam-Webster. And here's the definition for selfish. Concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others arising from concern with one's own welfare or advantage in disregard of others. To summarize, behaving selfishly means to be excessively or exclusively concerned with self without regard for others. Do you hear how extreme that is? How far you would have to go in order to actually meet the criteria for this definition? Engaging in self-caring actions, i.e. ensuring our base wellness and sanity, can hardly be considered excessive or exclusive fixation with self. And I don't think anyone in a helping profession could ever be construed as doing much of anything with complete disregard for others. When we fully understand what selfishness means, I think we can quickly see that it would be difficult to self-care ourselves into qualifying for this kind of extreme self-preoccupation. I also said a minute ago, 
that part of the problem here is misunderstanding not just what selfishness is, but also what self-care is. At the heart of it, self-care is not just care for yourself. It is care for others. Think of it like a bank account. In order to give generously from your bank account, you also have to have something coming in, or you'll very quickly be running into the red and big problems happen there. In order to care well for others, we have to have a supply to offer from. And in order to maintain our supply of energy and care, we have to refill and replenish our stores on a semi-regular basis. When you engage in self-care, you actually grow your capacity to care for others and to care more effectively for them. Because you're not offering care while running on fumes and offering them the scraps of yourself that are left after all the other demands have been met. You're offering care from your own well self, which is a higher quality you. Some of you may have heard the airplane metaphor for self-care. It goes like this. When you're on a plane, they tell you that in the case of an emergency, air masks will drop down from the overhead compartment. And they instruct you that you are to put on your own mask before helping others. Why? Because you're not useful if you're unconscious or dead. You become a liability yourself, even in the effort to come to the aid of others. It might be good-hearted, but it's not helpful. We have to ensure our own wellness because it allows us to help others. When we understand this, when we understand the math of it, suddenly the idea that self-care is selfish becomes ridiculous because not only is it not selfish, it is actually to the significant benefit of others. It's a gift we give ourselves our loved ones, our communities, and the whole wide freaking world. Myth number two, self-care is a fluffy, girly, dumb waste of time and doesn't fix anything. All right, I'll admit this one might be a few myths mixed together. A lot of people report believing that self-care is feminine, that it is long baths, smelly candles, and trips to the spa. That is a bunch of hooey. Self-care has as many different faces as the people who employ it as a tool. It is personal to the user and can be so many things. We are going to tackle this more in coming episodes in terms of what self-care can actually look like. So come back for the coming episodes in the series. But I promise you, there is nothing specifically fluffy or girly about self-care. Functionally, self-care has a very specific intention, to act as a consistent reminder to your brain and body about your worth, value, and safety. In many ways, this is connected to the last several episodes where we discussed mindfulness and the ways we engage our brain to target train the structures of our brain that help to counterbalance stress. Self-caring actions and an integrated mentality of self-care 
as a fundamental aspect of our base operating system are significant contributors to building up the part of our brain that regulates stress. Many people talk about self-care being nice in the moment that they're doing the action, but not keeping it up as a routine out of a belief that the effects are temporary and don't actually fix anything. The challenge is that self-care is not a magic wand. It doesn't instantly ease all of the problems in the world. Self-care is also not able to undo the fact that life is really hard sometimes, particularly when what you're exposed to in frontline work is so far above and beyond what a bad day is intended to look like for most people. However, regular and consistent intentional actions of self-care create a cumulative effect, and research has confirmed this. When we operate in our everyday lives, looking for big and small ways to care for ourselves and replenish our stores, the accumulated effect actually changes how your brain looks and functions when stressed and when calm. Research has also shown that self-care improves measures of health and wellness, including lower morbidity, mortality, and subsequent healthcare costs. It's a bit like starting a weight loss program or something else to that effect. We put in work on the front end and we tend to get tempted to cave when we don't see immediate results. But it's the consistent effort over time that leads to outcomes. We just have to hang in. And when we do, the benefits are more than just our gene size. Engaging in self-care may not be a magic cure-all pill, but nothing in life is. It is, however, a really effective way of investing in your wellness long-term for your benefit and for those who care about you. Myth number three, self-care is just a bunch of random activities that make you feel good. To this one, I say... Well, kinda. Yeah, self-care is a bunch of actions, big and small. And as I mentioned before, we'll be talking about the specific ways we can do self-care in coming episodes. And I promise we'll be giving you handouts with as many ideas as possible to help you brainstorm and find what works for you. But self-care isn't really about the actions. It's about the heart behind them. Let me give you an example. I'm a shower person. I have an absolute hatred for baths and I cannot handle the idea of sitting in my own filth with water that is progressively getting colder with nothing to do but attempt to read a book without getting it wet. I don't get it. I don't get people who like it. But there are two versions of showers in my life and they would look identical to an observer which would be weird and creepy that this were observed. But nonetheless, one version is functional. Shampoo hair, wash face, wash body, conditioner, rinse, done. The other looks the same, but the intention involved is different. Shampoo hair and notice the smell of coconut. Do the hair massage thing my hairdresser does when she shampoos before a haircut. Notice the warmth of the water, Breathe in the steamy lavender-scented air while I soap. Stretch my neck a bit while rinsing conditioner. On the outside, the actual steps would look almost the same. But in one version, I'm just trying to get through the task I have to do 
before moving on to the next part of my day. In the other version, I'm allowing myself to use this functional time as a way to take time for myself, prioritize things I like, and connect with them. Like the coconut smell of my shampoo, which I deliberately choose because it makes me think of pina coladas in a hammock on a beach somewhere warm. Think of self-care less like random actions that feel good and more like an exercise in intention. The best thing I can compare it to is parenting. When you parent from an intentional place, you work at being thoughtful about ways to show intentional care to and for your child. My kids love to ask me for foot massages or one more chapter of a book or cuddles on the couch. And those are all the ways I show care to them. They also need me to book doctor's appointments, dentist visits, and make them healthful meals because these are parts of how they stay well and no one else is going to do them on their behalf. When we are doing self-care, we're offering a similar type of care to ourselves as good parents would offer to their children. We're being thoughtful of ourselves, mindful of our needs, attentive to our wishes, and willing to engage with these things, knowing that it doesn't make us spoiled and selfish. It makes us strong and capable to extend ourselves out to others. Last but not least, myth number four. Self-care is complicated, time-consuming, financially demanding, or can only be done alone. Okay, again, this might be a few myths rolled into one, but I would classify these as the practical arguments against self-care. When we start talking over the next few weeks about the various types of self-care and we brainstorm what this can look like, I can guarantee you will quickly see that these arguments fall apart. In the meantime, consider my shower example. Everyday tasks can be considered self-care when we engage them from a heart of caring for and valuing ourselves, which means the things you do all the time can be converted into your self-care regime. While some self-care actions can be more complicated, time-consuming, expensive, etc., This is not a requirement. Over the coming weeks, we're going to talk about building a comprehensive self-care plan. And in its most ideal form, it would include actions that are really diverse. Some that can be done if I have tons of energy and others that can be options if I have very little energy. Some that can be done over the course of hours or a weekend, others that fit in five minutes or less some that cost more, and some that cost less or nothing, some that are best done alone, others that can include my family or friends, and so on. Don't let the practical concerns get in the way of trying to incorporate self-care into your daily life. I promise it gives more than it takes. And if you get a bit creative and scrappy, you can find a bit of self-care almost anywhere. As I said near the start, there may be more myths that I've missed. If you come up with some, let me know so I can tackle them another time. But I hope that this has covered the heavy hitters. I'm curious if any of these hit home for you. 
And if so, I hope you'll mull what you've heard today and maybe challenge some of these preconceived notions about self-care that have perhaps limited you from really glomming onto this idea and that this could be helpful. There has yet to be any research I'm aware of that suggests negative impacts of self-care. So at the end of the day, it can really only stand to benefit you and those in your life. And there really isn't a downside. Now, the next challenge is, what do you do to do self-care? Well, join me next week and we will start to tackle that question because at the end of this series, I want you to have a ton of ideas to work with that range in time, energy commitment, expense, and so on, so that there are no excuses. Before we wrap up for today, I want to lay out a bit of a roadmap for where we're going from here in this series on self-care, as well as share an announcement about something I've come up with for those who are keen to really work at implementing self-care strategies in a meaningful way. Let's start with the podcast series roadmap. Today's episode has been all about debunking the myths about self-care and making a case for why we should care about self-care. Next week's episode, episode 11, we'll be talking about making self-care strategic, where we'll break down ways to implement self-care in the most meaningful ways possible. The week following, episode 12, we will cover self-care... The week following, episode 12, we will cover making self-care personal, where we'll talk about the ways self-care varies from person to person and how to get your inner scientist to help you out in an experimentation process to figure out what self-care looks like for you. After that, episode 13, we will tackle making self-care practical because all the learning about self-care in the world won't amount to a hill of beans if you can't actually put it into action and keep it up consistently day to day. And last but not least, episode 14 is all about doing the shit and making it happen, where we will wade through barriers that can get in the way, developing habits that stick, and reaping the benefits of all your hard work. Now, on top of this podcast series, and in an effort to make sure that you walk away from this with every chance at success in creating a killer self-care component of your strategic action plan for wellness... I am also going to be launching a five-day challenge at the beginning of March called the Self-Care Dare Five-Day Challenge for First Responders and Frontline Workers. And I hope you'll consider taking the dare and joining us. It's five bucks to enroll for the challenge where you'll get access to daily videos from me focused on developing and honing your self-care skills in five key domains. You will also have access to a private Facebook group to connect with one another and with me to help navigate stumbling blocks and celebrate successes. There will be bonus resources and some prizes to help motivate you toward your goal, and I can hardly wait. If you would like to join the challenge, you can register anytime before March 2nd, when the challenge will kick off. You can find where to register in the show notes of today's episode. If you're listening to this show on one of the platforms that doesn't carry the show notes, click from the platform that you're on to the podcast website, which is almost always at the top of the page, and you can find the show notes there. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, 
I hope you'll share this with those that you care about and who are on the front lines alongside you. I have this dream of a culture shift for frontline workers where we collectively value wellness and support one another's wellness. Rather than fearing stigma and perceptions, I may not live to see it, but it starts with things like this, sharing tools that help to build us up, that give us common language and skills, and that encourage us to not just bide time and survive in the job, but to find tools to help us thrive. I want that for you and for your peers, and I hope that you will help me get the message out. As always, I would love to hear from you, and I always enjoy receiving thoughts, stories, reflections, and feedback from episodes. My contact details are always in the show notes. Until next time, everybody, stay safe.